Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Genevieve Lester, the DeSario Chair for Strategic Intelligence at the U.S. Army War College. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Today I'm joined by Director Jim Clapper, the fourth Director of National Intelligence. He served from August 2010 to January 2017 under President Barack Obama. This appointment came after a long and distinguished career in the U.S. Armed Forces, where he retired as a lieutenant general and served in a range of leadership positions, including director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, first civilian director of the National Imagery and Mapping Agency. In this role, he transformed the agency into the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, otherwise known as NGA. Beyond this, he served for over three years in two presidential administrations as the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. Welcome, Director Clapper. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks, Jim, for having me. What we're going to be addressing today is obviously the situation in Afghanistan and the variety of explanations for what is occurring there. And I just wanted to start with this question. We've seen different reasons for the failure for what is happening there. One of them is intelligence failure. Can you speak to this? Do you feel that it was an intelligence failure? Well, I, I think it was a collective or a corporate failure because the way this worked, certainly during my six plus years as DNI, is that the intelligence community uh, classically and consistently rendered pretty pessimistic outlooks um, to include in national intelligence estimates about the prospects for uh, stability in Afghanistan, about the stability of the government and about the uh, viability of the Afghan military and security forces. To the point where this was always a bone of contention, frankly, between the Department of Defense generally and and ISAF specifically. In fact, uh, I recall one specific occasion where when General Dave Petraeus was ISAF commander, and he was uh, unhappy with a national intelligence estimate that had been done and insisted that he put a be permitted to put a dissent uh, in that NIE, which reflected what he thought was a better informed and more optimistic outlook for uh, Afghanistan. So I find it hard to believe that all of a sudden the intelligence community has come up with a rosy projection of what's gonna, what was going to go down in Afghanistan. So the point here is that the judgment about the, the viability of the uh, Afghan government, its uh, military and security forces, and its uh, survivability against a Taliban attack would not be an exclusive intelligence community call. And in my experience, whenever we had NSC meetings, principals committee meetings, you know, in, intelligence would give its rather what was regarded as negative perspective. And the uh, Department of Defense, led principally by whoever the ISAF commander was at the time, would give a more optimistic uh, portrayal. 
I'll never forget once I was asked by Senator Levin in the course of the Senate Armed Services Committee hearing, why is it that there is this gulf between the intelligence perspective in Afghanistan and the military? I said, well, perhaps it's because intelligence occupies the half of the glass that's empty and the military uh, represents the half of the glass that's full and maybe the truth is somewhere at the waterline. But the point of all this is that I believe if, if you want to finger point here to failure, it was a it was a collective or corporate failure. And I don't think it's uh, I may sound defensive here, but I don't think it was the exclusive call by intelligence. You know, nobody's actually seen what those assessments are. No one is actually knows what uh, the DNI uh, or the CIA director perhaps has said to the president. You know, we're all speculating about this. And let's say there uh, there was a pronouncement that, you know, Kabul wouldn't, wouldn't fall for 30 days versus falling imminently. Well, in one sense, that's irrelevant because there should have been planning done for an evacuation in either event, whether it was imminent or 30 days off. And that apparently didn't happen. That's an excellent point. I, I think also the time frame issue that you mentioned, the the imminent nature of, of, of the collapse versus 30 days or a year out. And that is also being ascribed to the intelligence community, that the assessment of the time frame was much longer than than what actually occurred. What could you attribute this to? Well, yeah, I guess that's, that's the nature of war, you know, the fog of war. And I, I think it's... Uh, to me, it's kind of like arguing about how many things on the head of a pin on how many days the government, before the government collapses. The, the fact is, there was one thing there was agreement on, the government wouldn't last. <laughs> no one was arguing that. So it's a question of how many days. Well, you know, if you can ca- calibrate in in the future, well, is it going to be 26 days or... 16 days or, you know, then to me, that is, that is immaterial and arguing about it is kind of irrelevant. The point is, there was no question about its lack of viability. And there was no question that in any event, there needed to be a lot of detailed planning for evacuations. And that, that, that didn't happen. So now we're going to turn around, of course, you know, the classic old line in intelligence there's only two conditions in life, policy success or intel failure. There's no other condition in life. So intelligence is always, I can attest, a convenient scapegoat. From a military perspective, looking at your, your using your military hat um, and from your, your strategic perspective, what do you think happened with the Afghan army? We had invested, the U.S. had invested tremendous amounts of resources and time. Uh, what happened? Well, what this proves is... Uh, another uh, a repeat of a lesson that I saw and experienced during my war in, in air quotes uh, Southeast Asia, and that is you cannot buy uh, leadership and you cannot buy will to fight. And like it or not, the Taliban had an ideology and a narrative, and their ideology, as objectionable as you might find it. Uh, was something they believed in and were and consistently hewed to. And they had a narrative which 
said that the government in the central government in Kabul was corrupt, uncaring, and was, and the only reason it existed is because it was propped up by infidels from the West. And that narrative appealed to many Afghans, particularly in the rural areas, not so much the urban elites, but it certainly appealed to those in the rural areas, which is where the Taliban was strong. This is not unlike what I saw happen in my war, Southeast Asia. Uh, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese had a narrative, which was simply renewed from when, they're, when they fought the French. And we didn't have a counter narrative. And we thought we could buy uh, will to fight and leadership on the part of the South Vietnamese, and we failed. And it's, it, to me, this is almost a repeat of history uh, from Southeast Asia to Afghanistan. Do you think that we, and again, I'm not trying to ascribe intelligence failure here, but do you think we failed to understand the depth of the ideological attractiveness of the Taliban? Well, who's we? The U.S. Well, U.S., the administration, the national security team, I, and I, I don't know. Uh, I, I can only, I can. I think during the Obama administration, uh, you know, there's a good bit of realism, I think, um, and I don't know what happened here. So it's important when you say we, who is we? Um, the United States collectively, the, this administration, the national security team, national security advisor, secretary of state, secretary of defense. So, you know, you need, you need to stipulate who we is. Does the United States have ex, uh, expectations that U.S.-style democracy would be attractive to the Afghans? Well, <laughs> um, I think most uh, thinking people uh, realize that wasn't possible. There was no way to, uh, I mean, I guess we, we gave it a try. But the notion of imposing um, a modern liberal democracy um, shining city on the hill kind of thing uh, in Afghanistan is is really naive and unrealistic. You know, there's a, a culture there, a medieval society in, in, in many respects, that is not amenable to, in my opinion, a, a, a democracy in the sense that we know it. I think this is such an interesting point. Um, as, as we see the Taliban go from a movement into governance, into running the government, what role will the U.S. intelligence community have going forward? Well, it'll still have uh, be the responsibility and still be looked to to glean intelligence about what's going on in Afghanistan. Now, obviously, that's going to be a lot more difficult if we don't even have an embassy there. So we're going to be looking, as an expression, the current uh, art form expression from over the horizon, um, which is not uh, insubstantial, but it's going to be much more difficult in the absence of people on the ground. I hope and trust we have some contacts with people that are that are there, but uh, intelligence gathering is going to be a lot more difficult, and that's problematic because of the potential for the Taliban once again harboring the likes of Al-Qaeda or ISIS or any other 
uh, insurgent group that's bent on attacking the U.S. homeland. And it'll be the intelligence community's responsibility to, to try to, to determine uh, if that's going on or not. So, uh, you know, the intelligence community, as usual, doesn't get a pass. So the Taliban is, it seems, unified when we're looking at the maps covered in red, but it is riven by factions as well. Can you speak to this? Well, I'm not an expert on Taliban, but I do believe that uh, a lot has changed in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. And the Taliban is not, has factions within it. Uh, I think that was evident in even through the course of the negotiations. Um, and I think uh, they remind me somewhat of the do- uh, dog catching the car. Uh, what's going to happen the morning after, or as Tom Friedman of the New York Times says, aptly so, the morning after the morning after, when the reality sets in and now they're in charge, they're, gonna, they're supposed to govern the whole country. I think what will happen is that it will be a, that will be on a very decentralized basis. And then you're going to have, I think, uh, wide differences in how individual Taliban leaders in each one of the province, provinces and districts runs things. Um, and so, that, you know, this is it's going to be interesting to watch uh, now that the euphoria of walking down the main dragon in Kabul is over. Uh, and the reality of actually running the place sets in. How do you think this is going to play out regionally? Well, I don't know. Um, I think in some sense, uh, this is uneasy for the region. Uh, The U.S. presence there provided a certain uh, degree of stability uh, in Afghanistan, which, you know, potentially has a spillover effect. I think, frankly, Pakistanis, maybe uh, a bit uneasy with this. Um, they sort of have a modus vivendi, if you will, with the uh, Taliban, you know, notably the Haqqani network. So I think, the, you know, the countries in the region are going to be uh, a bit nervous. Um, and uh, as Tom Friedman again said, maybe looking up uh, the United States in their Rolodex. That's, a, uh, that's exactly what I was going to ask. Do you see an American re-engagement in the region and an American re-engagement with the Taliban as we think about whether to legitimize? We already are, apparently informally, and you know, we've had this negotiating uh, link with them for some time. Uh, and apparently there's some dialogue with somebody in the Taliban uh, with respect to the, the, the evacuation. Uh, whether or not we recognize uh, a Afghan Afghanistan with a Taliban government, I don't know. Going back to a more granular level, and uh, in, in back to the issue that we began with, intelligence failure, was there anything the Army intelligence could have done differently to understand how quickly the Taliban was, was moving, how effective they were going to be? Well, Army... Any intelligence component, in to the extent that, and of course, intelligence was affected by the drawdown in Afghanistan too. So the resource, the intelligence resources, I'm pretty sure. I, I don't have inside baseball here, but I'm surmising the intelligence resources that we had in the United States, regardless of whether the U.S. Army or 
CIA or whatever, are focused on the, the Taliban, um, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, you know, the bad guys, and less focus on the Af Afghans. The people actually in a position to, to gauge the Afghan military uh, uh, competence were the advisors. And for that matter, the embassy, rather than intelligence, which I don't think in, in the country was focused very much on the Afghans and rather focused on the Taliban, you know, that subset of, the, of Afghans, as well as ISIS, Al-Qaeda, or any other insurgent group. Going back to your, your Air Force general officer hat, um, the, Afghan, the Afghans did have an Air Force. Can you speak to how the Air Force was used and why it wasn't more effective in this case? Well, I, I really don't know. Uh, I think the, the Air Force, uh, like the Army, the Afghan Army was, um, you know, patterned after us. Um, and this, again, is very reminiscent of, of my experience in Vietnam, where we organized, train, equip, and uniform uh, proxy military to act, look, uh, and drive vehicles like us. And so I think we ascribe a certain uh, professional competence to uh, proxy militaries because of that, and that's probably misplaced. Mirror imaging sounds like a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah so exactly. The beginning of, of the their stint at the U.S. Army War College, students are exposed to a strategic concept that integrates ends, ways, and means. Do you think there was a misalignment of ends, ways, and means in Afghanistan? I want to make sure I understand what you mean by ends, ways, and means. If you mean the end state of defeating the Taliban and having a stable central government that was regarded uh, as credible by the uh, Afghan people, if that was the end, the end, uh, the end objective is probably very unrealistic. And we have known, and many and people have served in Afghanistan have known because many of them have told me this, that they recognize the corruption in the Afghan government, the Af Afghan military, and we never really dined them out for that. So if you're looking for lessons learned here, might have been uh, better to have said, if you want this kind of capability, if you want this kind of support, you're going to have to do something meaningful to change your ways with respect to corruption, because I think that over time really undermined uh, the effort to support the Afghan government, such as it was, and their military. And that's one one reason why, put to the test, it was um, kind of hollow and rotten. Do you think there was and any way? I think way... people realized that contemporaneously as they deployed for their six, seven months or a year or whatever it was. And then somebody came in to replace them and relearned the same lesson. And we kept seeing it over and over again, and that, but never really did anything about it. Was there, was it possible to do anything about it? Do you feel? Well, we, I don't know. Uh, you know, there's certain cultural characteristics in Afghanistan that are uh, pretty hard to change. So, that's a good question. Uh, I, I, I don't know. 
Just as we wrap up, thanks again for joining us, Director Clapper. Is there anything, any other lessons learned any for our students um, that we should draw from this as well, we watch we this? Classically, and I say we, uh, define that as whether um, military operators and intelligence people have always had trouble gauging will to fight. We have historically underestimated the will to fight of adversaries and overestimated uh, the capabilities of those we're supporting. That certainly was true in Vietnam and it was true in, in Iraq and it's certainly true in Afghanistan. So the lesson here, I guess, is, you know, look at look at the, 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 the military being supported with a cold, objective eye. Director Clapper, thank you so much for joining us today and contributing your insights. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Jen. Thanks for having me. And thanks to all of you for tuning in and listening to us. Please send your comments on this program and all programs and send your suggestions for future programs. Please subscribe to A Better Peace. And please rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice so that other people can find us too. We're always interested in growing this community so that we can have more people tuning in for conversations like this. This conversation is over, but there will be others, and we look forward to welcoming you. Until next time, from the War Room, I'm Genevieve Lester. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.